0: Kids, you guys can be dismissed. Here, classes, you got it. Uh, And good morning. Uh, Glad to have you each here with us, man. Amber, you guys are over here. Oh, nice. I like. You you threw me for a loop. Not gonna lie. You're sitting over there. That's good. The uh, for those of you gathered online, uh, grateful to have you as well uh, with us. And if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, uh, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I'm grateful uh, not only to have you and to see you all here in person, but to have those that are gathered uh, online as well. This this morning, we're in the second week of our uh, Lenten series that we're going through this book together uh, by Kai Mark Nielsen called Renew Your Life. So we're just calling this, this same, the name of the series the exact same thing. Uh, and we hope that today would be an encouragement, but also maybe a challenge for us as we're seeking to apprentice ourselves after the ways of Jesus, which means we're needing to learn to learn some new ways of living. We need to learn new patterns of life in order if we're going to live the life that God has called us to live. As I said, this is the second week. We started last week with this idea uh, and asking the question, a simple question really, but redemptively disruptive question for us. And that is, if if you had to describe the condition of your soul, how would you describe it to someone? If you, the, just the condition of your inner heart, your inner life, your, your soul, the, the inner part of you. If you had to c- kind of describe that condition, how would you describe it to somebody? What's going on in the inner workings of your heart and what that might do for you? And we said that that would, it would be a, a good question, but potentially redemptively disruptive because it can kind of just disrupt the surface level things of going on in our life, but help us pay attention to what's really going on. Not the external things, not just the things that just kind of look on the outside, but what's really going on is a condition of our souls. And, and we've talked a little bit last week that for many of us, our souls, our, their inner part of our life can be a little depleted these days. They can be tired. They can be kind of uh, worn down, as it were. And yet we're told in the Scriptures that we are called to live this abundant, joyous life, that this life that God has come to give us is one of abundance, one of fullness, one of overflow. And yet our souls at times tend to be depleted, tend to be kind of worn down or or tired as well. But what we've seen last week, and we'll see in this next few weeks, what we've seen is that we're hardwired into the very makeup of creation, the actual made up of how God has wired up the world, is God's presence is here, available for us, and His presence fill us with the ability to live with this overflowing, abundant life. That God's desire for us is to live with this joyous abundance. To revitalize the old tired lives that we live, to fr- refresh us, to be able to live according to his kingdom, according to his ways, and his uh, presence is always available to us. So, our responsibility is to make ourselves available. So the presence of God, the power of God, the grace of God, the energy of God that's always available around us, if we make ourselves available to it, then we revitalize, re-energize, and kind of refresh our tired and worn-out souls. And this will be a good thing for us. These are always here, but we need to learn new ways because we have a pattern of living that kind of keeps us kind of uh, blinded to the presence of God around us. And we need to make ourselves, which means we need to learn a new way of living. Learn some new patterns, new things to do to kind of go after. We, we spoke about some practices. Last week I introduced you to a practice of morning prayer. And just simply to in the morning, not three hours long, but in the morning, just a couple minutes, to take a couple deep breaths and think about what lies ahead of me today and say what energy, what power, what grace of God do I need in my life to make it through today? And so I just begin my day with the rhythm, with the practice of breathing in and saying, God, I need your patience today. I need your gentleness today. I need your goodness today. I need your love today. I need your whatever today. And that beginning to incorporate that practice, that rhythm in my day, reminds me of God's available presence with me that I might live in it. And that would give me the energy, the strength, and the grace that I need for for the day. Well, these next few weeks we're going to do similarly. We're going to invite us to some various practices to do. And I don't mean to overwhelm you. It's like each week there's another practice. i got to do another thing. I don't mean to overwhelm you. What I want to simply do is to invite you to understand the presence of God that's around us to revitalize and refresh our souls and to engage in some practices regularly throughout these weeks. And so maybe it's this morning prayer that we talked about last week. And maybe that's the practice you want to hold on to. Or maybe it's the practice we're going to get to in a few minutes as we talk about this morning. But grab a hold of one or two of these practices and just seek to incorporate them into a rhythm of life over these next few weeks, especially in Lent. And just see how it may shape you and, and give you some uh, space to be revitalized by the grace of God in your life. Your soul will, will be benefited by these kind of practices. And before I jump into the thing we want to talk about this morning, last week we spoke about four debilitating distortions that kind of, or ways of life that kind of deplete us of our energy. Ways that kind of distort the reality and they kind of deplete our energy and they go from there. So I, just as a way of recap, I want to show you those again. They're up here on the screen here. And these are ways in which we sometimes will, will go after these things and when we do, that kind of has a way of sapping out our energy. When we live uh, with the superficiality, just on the surface, we have a fear of vulnerability, we keep everybody, and even God at times, at arm's distance, well that has a way of sapping out of our energy because we just always live surfacely. We just skip over like a a rock does over on on a smooth pond. We just skip over the surface. Uh, or, or maybe it's this seduction of more, where more things and be more and do more, and that, just, that, that hamster wheel of life that we find ourselves in is just depleting us of energy. Or maybe it's not those, maybe it's just this general pace of life, that we have to be involved in everything, and we have to have our kids involved in everything, and, and we have to do everything, and that just running things, that pace of life, the hurry that we find ourselves in, depletes us, of our energy. And then the fourth one we talked about was this quick fix that when we find ourselves tired and we find ourselves, uh, our spiritual life exhausted a bit, we just want God to kind of zap us like a fairy godmother and make it everything happy again. And, and rarely does it work that way. We need to walk through these things. We need to muddle through things as uh, Nielsen writes in his book. But I just want us to look at those again and consider in the front of our mind how our souls tend to be depleted. And which one of these, which one of these distortions do we tend to be tempted by and go after? Which one of these for us? Which one of these for us? What I'm inviting us to do during this season of Lent these weeks leading up to Easter is to intentionally seek to be aware of God's work and His presence around to revitalize us so that we aren't hindered by these debilitating distortions, but that we are filled by His abundant grace and love and mercy and kindness and His energy in our life. But here's the underlying issue under, Underlying each of these four and other distortions that you can think about, the, the thing that causes us to go after these things and causes us to have depleted energy in our life is an uncertainty of who you are. There's an uncertainty of our identity, an uncertainty of where my worth and my value comes from. And when I am unsure of those things, then I'll go after these things. When I'm unsure of my understanding, of my value, of my worth, my identity, well, then I'm really quick to think that if I just had more things, then that would bring satisfaction. If I, I'd be real quick to think, well, if I was just involved in more things, that would bring satisfaction. If, I'd be really quick to feel like, well, if I can just kind of, play the part and be superficial, then that would bring satisfaction. If I'm unsure of who I am and my value, my worth, my identity and where it comes from and to whom I belong, then these distortions become really easy to go after. And this becomes the marker of my life. And they're really exhausting. They're really exhausting. And so in this series, this morning and the rest of these Weeks We're going to seek to prioritize a new way of living that reminds us of who we are and reminds us to whom we belong. And because of that, then these distortions can fade away and we don't fall victim to them any longer. And slowly we can see our hearts and our minds and our character really transformed into the image of Jesus. Our job is to be available to the presence of God around us all the time. That we might experience more of him in our ordinary lives and the identity crisis that we find ourselves in, Well, we'll find at the answer where it really is needed. So this morning I want to look at the energy of God's grace. The energy of God's <laughs> grace. Now we've talked a lot about grace around and, and it certainly has to do with forgiveness, but it's so much more than that. So much more than just a, a, a transaction of forgiveness, grace can be defined as God's activity in our life. Where there's God's activity in your life is grace. It's undeserved, it's unwarranted, it simply comes to us as a gift. And God's grace is hardwired into the creation itself. The way we were made. How we were made, how God fashioned us together is all grace. And his grace extends beyond the creation, through our life, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and into the life that he's called in us to live. It's all by God's grace. It's all by God's activity at work in our life and around our life. And we see it all throughout Scripture, but again with Nielsen pointing us back to the, the creation account, you see it right at the very beginning of the creation account in Genesis. The very beginning, Genesis chapter one, verse one, God, God in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created. Friends, our very existence is by grace. What does that mean? It means that there's nothing we have done to warrant or to justify or to prove ourselves worthy of being made. You were just simply made. In the beginning, God made. His activity is all throughout creation. There's nothing you did to deserve the breath that you are breathing, the blood flowing through your veins, the organs working together. You didn't earn that. You didn't work hard enough to have a body to do what it's supposed to do. It just does it by God's grace. That's His activity at work in your life. From the very beginning of creation, it's God's grace. When we forget that, when we forget that our very life is a gift, The very breath that we breathe is a gift. The blood flowing is a gift. When we forget that it's a gift, then we live under this burden of trying to prove our worth, to trying to prove how good we are by either what we do or what others say about us or by what we have. And we try to prove ourselves. But we learn from the very beginning of Scripture and all throughout Scripture, actually, that God's activity in our life is God's grace. It's all God's grace. But we're tempted to forget that. We're tempted to replace that with our activity, with our ways in which people look at us. And we place ourselves under a burden of of other people's expectations over us or even our own expectations of the kind of person we should be or we ought to be and all those things. And very quickly, we slide into the comparison game. Or we compare ourselves with other people to see how we stack up against other people in the classroom. Where's our grade? How how, how are we compared to somebody else? And we play the comparison game with just about everything—about how we look, about what we drive, about what they drive, about how well they know the Bible, how well we know the Bible, how well they pray, how how confused we are, and all this. We compare ourselves in all these different ways. We compare ourselves because we haven't. Yet, fully realize and let the truth sink down that all of this is God's grace. That we eat and drink and move and breathe and live and exist by God's grace. This is all gift to us. This is all gift. So, we constantly strive to be better than the other person, strive to have more than the other person, to have other people say nicer things about us than they say about somebody else to have other people look up to us. We strive to have this constant battle of trying to prove ourselves to other people, to compare that we are better than somebody else and that we have it better than somebody else. And that constant comparison game, well, it's just exhausting. And you never win. You never win. And it completely depletes your soul and it strips you of joy and it strips you of grace, and it strips you of energy, and you're constantly trying to compare and live up to all these things, it just is exhausting. But when you can learn the eternal truth, when I can learn this eternal truth that our very life is a gift, and it's grace, and that my worth and that your worth is not tied or connected to what you do, or by what you have, or by what others say about you, That your value, your worth, your identity is all grace. When we can allow that truth to set in, well then we're freed from frustration of constantly having to live up to people's expectations and to what we feel like our own expectations are. We're free to that. But we're gonna have to learn to live that way. We're gonna have to learn to learn to live a a new way because we've been swimming in the waters of comparison for a long time. For a long time many of us since we can remember. We compared ourselves to our siblings. We compare ourselves to the other kids in the classroom. Then we compare ourselves to the other young marrieds. Then we compare ourselves to those people that are just having children. Then we compare ourselves to people at work. Then we compare ourselves. We've been swimming in the waters of comparison for a long time. If we're going to learn new ways of living, we're going to have to practice new ways of living, new ways of thinking, new ways of understanding God and ourselves. And what's at the heart of that struggle, what's at the heart of it is our very image of God, who God is, who God is. In his chapters in the book, if you've been following along, Nielsen has what he calls, I think in each chapter, he has what he calls essential life questions. Essential life questions, ones to wrestle with and to think through because they have a way of shaping how we live in this world. And this is one of them. What is your image of God? Or in other words, what comes to mind or what do you think about when you think about God? What is your predominant image or the, the central characteristic that you think about when you think about God? Many of us in our life groups are in a formation retreat pre-COVID, way back in those days when we had a formation retreat. We went through a book together, The Good and Beautiful God by James Bryan Smith. And we're introduced to all sorts of false narratives about God things that we have played in our mind, narratives that we've played about who God is that have plagued us and have shaped us in our, not only our approach to God, but our own understanding of our own life. And when we allow these false narratives to play out in our life, then they have a way of shaping and understanding how we try to understand and how we try to go after this God. So this question of what do you think about when you think about God is really an essential life question because it changes everything. What do you think about when you think about God? What are the central characteristics of God that you think about that drive how you approach and how you understand God? Now James Bryan Smith's got a whole book on that. I'd encourage you if you haven't read it and gone through it as a life group or as a small group or with some friends to go through that. He's got a whole book of them. I can't handle I can't do all of the false narratives, but let me just point out two that seem to be pretty predominant in our conversations with people around. Two false narratives or ways of thinking about God that shape how we understand God. Because for some, and I'd imagine some even here, whether you're here in person or you're streaming online, for some of us, we grew up with an understanding of God that is our predominant view of Him is like this demanding boss or this ceo that sits behind this massive desk and hands out you know annual reviews based on your performance and how well you did and what am i going to give you what kind of reward am i going to give you and what kind of punishment am i going to give you for some people the demanding uh, boss narrative pushes you to spend most of your time to just try to appease him your annual review's coming up. I gotta make sure I do enough to to please him. I gotta do enough to to make sure he's doing the right things. And and I gotta make sure I'm on this performance track and I gotta do the right things. I gotta stay away from the naughty things because this demanding boss, the CEO standing behind, or standing behind this large looming desk with this checklist of things. Did you do this? Did you do that? And that's the predominant picture and your view of God is the central aspect of his character is this kind of demanding character, this demanding presence. And if that's your narrative, is that what you think about when you think about God, if that's a central aspect of what you think about God, then maturing in the spiritual life and growing in the spiritual life really means you do exactly what God will demand of you to do, the way He says it, when He says it, how He says it, and you keep the letter of the law as perfectly as you possibly can at all costs. Because you live in fear of this demanding. Impeding kind of presence of this God who just is ready to smack you around if you step out of line. And that view of God, that that narrative of God, if that's your primary view of God, well, that will lead to a life of, of legalism. It leads to a life of legalism where you evaluate your own life based on how well did I perform for God how well did I memorize those verses? Did I get the star? Did I get this, the, the badge? Did I get the verses? How well did I perform for God? And he loves me because I perform for him. He will do things for me if I perform for him. And my predominant view of him will be very legalistic. And my predominant view of my own life, and I will evaluate the health of my life and the health of my life with other people based on these external legalism. This external life. And I begin to evaluate others that way. And so I see, when I see you not living up to the expectations that I think you should be living up to, well then, I'm better than you. And slowly, a spiritual superiority creeps into my life. And I can think that I'm, well, I'm better than you. Because I've kept these laws better than you have. You see how the comparison game? And those, those waters just keep coming around? There's actually a term for this in the Newer Testament. It's called Pharisee. And most of us don't want to be associated with Pharisees. Most of us would say, well, that's a bad thing. But oftentimes that dominant view of God leads us to be very legalistic about ourselves and about others. And we draw the line and we pass judgment on how well people are and how well loved they are and how blessed they are or how not blessed they are based on how well they perform by what we think God has this list of. And we do the same thing for us. And can I just, can I just tell you, that's exhausting. That's just a burden to live under. But there's a second predominant kind of way of thinking, a, a view of God that's, pretty predominant. Again, I I would suspect that a few of us, at least, have grown up with this version of God, and that is this view of God as a judge that has kind of these scales on this desk where all of the the evidence points to either good behavior or bad behavior, and we just really hope that our good behavior outweighs the bad behavior, and it'll get us off with, with some, you know, small fine, but we've got really good behavior, so we get off a little easier. As so we spend most of our life making sure that there's more on the right column and on the good column than there is on the bad column, on the wrong column. And when we have this nature of this narrative of God that He's primarily concerned with our behavior, and He's primarily concerned with judging our behavior, then we usually form, usually, form an understanding of what is in the right column and what is in the wrong column based on our preferences. That our preferences are right. And someone else's preferences are wrong. Because most people don't want a view of God where I'm always wrong. And my way of thinking is wrong. And my behaving is wrong. So we tend to kind of twist God's laws and twist God's heart in a way where I'm mostly right and somebody else is mostly wrong. We have this view of God to somehow try to justify our actions. And again, spiritual arrogance can kind of creep in spiritual arrogance and kind of look in, well, I am at least not as bad as so-and-so. I mean, I'm, I'm okay. I've got some bad on my scale, but I've got more good, and they've got more bad on their scale, so God must love me more than he likes them. And here comes the comparison game again. Here come these waters again. And just as a side note, just so I'm in authenticity with you, This spiritual arrogance, the spiritual superiority that I'm talking about, that like rarely comes out overtly. It rarely comes out. You rarely meet, I mean you might occasionally, but you rarely meet somebody who walks around and goes, I'm better than you. (laughs) You rarely meet somebody like that. But it almost always comes out subtly in the way in which you look at somebody, the way in which you speak to them, the tone of your voice. The way in which you post on Facebook. It's those kind of things. That superiority rarely comes across overtly and, and just out in your face. It's almost always beneath the surface. Bless you. It's almost always beneath the surface. So pay attention to that. So when, when these are our primary narratives of God, this arrogance, comes in and we lose the ability to love one another. Really? To love our neighbor as ourselves? We lose that ability when we're stuck in the waters of comparison. We lose the ability to love our neighbor as ourselves. And slowly we are taking steps away from Christ likeness and we have a, a an appearance of holiness, we have an appearance of righteousness. But our souls are shrunk in the process. But there's another aspect of this judge, God. Because while most people would kind of understand God as judge and they go, well, then I must be be kind of better than others. If that's your primary thought of God, that God is this judge who sits with these scales to find and see things, and you believe that you have wronged this God, and you believe that you have gone against him, and your primary characteristic of him is one of a judge with a gavel ready to send down a sentence over you, then the amount of guilt and shame and cloud of heaviness that weighs on you is almost unbearable. Many people don't come into a church gathering like this because of the overwhelming shame that they feel because their primary understanding of God's characteristic is one of God as a judge over them. And the shame and the guilt that they feel over past mistakes, they feel defines them eternally. And there's no hope. There's no hope. What do you think about when you think about God? What comes to mind in the central characteristic of God? Another good lunch conversation to have today. Let me give you a third option, and the one I think is probably more accurate to what we see in God as his character, the central part of his character, and that is God is God of grace. God is a God of grace. God's primary characteristic is of love and of grace. Love and grace perfectly expressed in the person of Jesus Christ and in his activity in our life. Again, you didn't do anything to deserve or earn or prove yourself worthy of breathing today. That's grace. Of the blood flowing through you, that's grace of the the stirring in your soul for something more eternal, more longing for that kind of stuff. That's God's grace. That's his activity at work in your life. Far before you knew him, understood him, even were born, grace was on the scene. For in the beginning, God created. Far before, thousands of years before you were even a splick. That's not a word. That's not a word. What's a splick? I don't know, something you weren't, right? Something you weren't. I don't know what that word is. It's ridiculous. Far before whatever you were, you were. Grace is there. Grace is there. And all throughout our life is grace. It's all God's working in our life. All of it is. We don't need to prove yourself. You don't need to prove or or appease or or perform well enough in order for God to give you grace. You you don't need to perform or or to behave well or to behave at least a little bit better than somebody else for God to give love to you, for God to demonstrate that to you. You can't prove yourself enough because it's all God's grace. It's all God's grace. This is what the Apostle Paul is picking up on and teaching on in the Newer Testament that we need to sink down into our very bones. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves as the gift of God. This is by grace you have been saved. By God's activity at work in your life that you have been saved. This is not you saving yourself. This is not you earning it. This is not you performing well enough. This is God's work at work in your life to bring you to a saving faith. In Romans chapter five, verse eight, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, before you could do anything to warrant his love over you, before you could prove yourself worthy of being died for, before you could do any of that stuff, before he proved any worth or anything whatsoever, to demonstrate God demonstrates his love, God demonstrates his grace over you, that while you are still rebellious in your own sin, far from God, he came and died for you. Not because you earned it or deserved it or worked it out or you were kind of okay. Okay. It's God's grace. It's God's grace. And then finally, in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ. In other words, the love of God is not dependent on what you do, on what others say about you, on what you have. The love of God is not based on how well you perform. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, from the grace of God. Not your sin, not your wrongdoing, not your rebellion, not the times when you thumb your nose at God. And when we yell at God and we shake our fists at God and when we're frustrated and when we say not nice things in our own mind, God's grace is there because his grace is not dependent on you performing well. His love is there because his love is not dependent on you saying the right things all the time and keeping the surface looking good. God's grace is eternally present at work in your life, even right now. It's all God's grace. Let that sink in for just a moment. Because whether you've been following Jesus for minutes or for decades, this truth needs to sink deeper down into our souls. It needs to sink down deeper. Because when this understanding sinks down in, then we stop the comparison game. We stop pretending that our lives are all that. We stop trying to prove ourselves to God. We stop trying to manage our image or anything else, and we simply rest in the goodness of God's grace. Now, I know a lot of us, I know that a lot of us have been around church for a while, and for most people we'll hear that kind of stuff especially being around in church and you go yeah that's true and you nod your heads and you go yeah I, I agree i agree with that but can i tell you that there's a difference between your stated view and your actual view it's one thing to say with our mouths that god is grace and that i don't earn it i didn't do it but often our lives live out very very differently it's one thing to nod your head and say, yeah, that sounds really good, Brian, keep going. That, that sounds really good. But our lives, our actual lives, play out underneath one of those debilitating distortions. Right? So it's one thing about our, our spoken kind of view, but it, our stated view, but it's another to, to transform our actual view where we're actually living under this truth of God's grace. Candidly, I know I'm a mixture of that. I know that I, I, my stated view is that God is love and God is grace and all that stuff, but I know that my actual life plays out differently where I still play the comparison game and I still swim in that water. And I struggle with my own false narratives of God and I, I suggest some of you do too. Some of you do too. Again, it's a great lunch, lunch conversation this afternoon. What do you think about when you think about God? But these old narratives of ours, these old narratives of God, they don't go away really quickly. They don't go away with just a a wave of of a wand and just kind of like just magically goes away. But I need this narrative of grace to be sinking down into who I am. I need it to be more real for me. So we need practices to do to help this narrative to be kind of grounded into my very being. We have to learn a new way of living. A way that puts off the false narratives and and submerges us and, and, and kind of consumes us with the truth of, of God's grace. And this morning, Nielsen's got these practices, <clears throat> excuse me, throughout the book. And this morning, the practice he gives us is this practice he calls grace in and grace out. Grace in and grace out. We've done something very similar, but I like his language. To it, But it's simply to just, maybe towards the end of our day, to reflect back on our day or reflect back on our week and ask the question, where did I receive God's grace? Where did I see God's activity in my life? This is grace in. Where did I experience God's grace? To just simply be reminded that I am surrounded by God's grace, God's activity in my life. So to practice, to discipline ourselves, to be aware of that by asking Where's the grace in? Where have I seen God's? Where have I experienced God's grace in? And then the grace out would be, where did I extend that grace in someone else? Where did I see, in other words, God's grace at work in someone else's life? Not only was I consuming grace, but where did I see grace extending from me? And to practice that, to learn to practice this grace in and this grace out. And we're going to do that. We're going to do that this morning. Because I don't want to just talk about things and never really do anything. So this morning I'm going to give you an opportunity to do just that. The band will come out and will lead us in a responsive song in a moment. But I'm just going to invite you to just kind of have a moment of quiet. A moment of just reflection. Take a couple deep breaths if that helps. Close your eyes if it helps. And just ask the question, where did I see God's grace in my life? Activity in my life this week or yesterday, or even this morning, and did I extend that grace? And when you recognize it, just say a prayer, a prayer of thanksgiving. God, thanks for that. Thanks for that grace. I appreciate that. And if you struggled this past week, or you struggle with, with it today, that, that's okay. It's okay. We're, we're on a process here. We're learning together a new rhythm, a new way of living. And so if you struggled with it today, I don't know where your grace was at. That's okay. Just simply ask, God, would you give me eyes to see your grace in my life this week? And if you struggled giving grace to someone else, that's okay. Give yourself grace. And just ask, God, would you give me the eyes to see and the ability to extend grace to someone else today or this week? So just kind of have a moment of quiet and as the band will come and will lead us in just a moment. But just have this grace in, grace out. And we'll go.